You are listening to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. The CBLDF podcast is part of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund's ongoing education program. My name is Alex Cox. I'm the editor, producer, and host of this episode. And our guest this month is Ed Luce, the creator of Wovable Oaf, which is a comic that began life as a paper doll, uh, which is something I'll let Ed explain as he gets on into the interview. Uh, Mr. Luce has a background in fine arts, which he has brought to his comic work and I think is uh, super interesting. We talk about a number of subjects in this interview. I think Ed is a fascinating individual, and I love Wovable Oaf, the comic. So it was a, a real... Uh, real treat to sit down and talk to him, and I appreciate him taking the time to speak to us. That said, I will turn it over to Ed. My name is Ed Luce, and I'm the creator of Wobble Oaf, which is primarily a comic. The foundation of it will always be a comic, but uh, in the eight going on nine years now since its creation, uh, it has morphed into music, uh, toys. I have a wonderful collaborator in uh, Eric Erspamer, who is a uh, Arizona-based sculptor. Uh, people gift me a lot of uh, uh, physical fan art, like actual dolls from, uh, like plush dolls from the comic. Uh, so it's really expanded out. I, I come from a fine arts background, uh, uh, that being in installation and performance art, as well as 2D mediums like painting and drawing. So. Uh, I came into comics thinking of it more as an interdisciplinary multimedia kind of enterprise. At one point, I had scratch and sniff cards so you could smell the Oaf characters. <laughs> we made Oafberry pops. So I'm a big consumer, even though I'm an indie comics creator, I'm a big consumer of a lot of the swag and a lot of the the merch that is a byproduct of maybe bigger corporate entities or even band culture. Um, so I've always thought of Wobble Oaf as, as that, uh, not having just uh, existing on the two-dimensional plane. Not that there's anything wrong with comics that do that, but uh, I think of it as, as having spilled out of the pages of the, the normal book into a bunch of other realms. Um, as far as what it's about, I always say very quickly, it's about big, scary, hairy dudes and the people that love them and cats. Um, and Satanism. But, but, yeah, and say and Satanism, but really, what I was gonna say is, it's like a platform for all of my interests. I think of it kind of as like the a, a wide breadth kind of universe, like Simpsons or South Park, where I can talk about whatever I want. So yeah, music, uh, wrestling, fashion. Uh, I, I'm really interested in telling stories that I haven't personally seen before, and, and ex- at the same time, expanding the corners of this what I call the Ophaverse. I think, I mean, going back to the merchandise thing, I think what's cool about the character, before we even start on the content of the comic, is the graphic quality of his design lends itself to, like, that kind of street art branding. Like, he has vestiges of the uh, Andre the Giant poster. No, absolutely. Like, in grad school, I had to take a communities and art seminar, and it was, I, I did Andre the Giant has a posse. Uh, because at that point, um, Shepard Ferry had set up shop in downtown uh, San Diego, and you could actually go and visit the shop. You could go go visit where he was making prints and stickers and things like that. So I did a walking tour of, of downtown uh, San Diego to Hillcrest and just took pictures of all of the stickers that I saw on the way that he and his crew had put up everywhere. So definitely aware of that, I guess you'd call it uh, iconographic type of, of graphic design. Like I, I, 
the 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 comic I decided to launch off of a, a drawing, a paper doll drawing that I got commissioned to do for a paper doll themed show. Again, uh, someone that I know in Arizona, the trunk space is actually the gallery; it's still there. Uh, they asked me if I would do this paper doll series, and and Wolfable Oaf, divorced from a comic, was the first image that I did. And uh, the just him in his underwear, and that's I think the image that maybe you're referring to that has that Andre the Giant kind of uh, rec- you know recognition. Oh, I just uh, mean his, his face. Oh, his just, face too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just the uh, dark but, eyes and the stark teeth and the. Yeah, well, the whole thing was sort of fully realized as this paper doll design. It was him in his unclothed state was in, you know this big hairy ugly guy with pink eyes and pink teeth. And um, he had pink, uh, black underwear with a little pink cat on it. And that that there sort of said everything that you needed to know about it. Then his outfits were Smith's shirts and and uh, footsie pajamas with cats crawling all over them. And <laughs> uh, it, it tended, it, it described uh, what a Wolf Wolf was kind of in a, a, a glance. So the comic, when, when I got uh, some interest in what that drawing was about, the comic grew out of, well, what is this character's backstory? And, Comics were seemingly the only way to to tell that. So, so he was not originally conceived as a comic. No, he started out as this just drawing, and the logo, the exact logo that I still use to this day across the top of all of the books, uh, was across the paper doll, uh, and it it just was presented in this different form. And as I was drawing the comic, um, I released the shirt, which. Uh, it, back in those days, it was MySpace. It was very popular. People started posting images of themselves in the shirt, uh, and it kind of grew a little bit virally. I think people were surprised to find out it was a comic ultimately, uh, because so many people had seen the shirt. They were like, "Oh, it's this other thing." And I had always envisioned that when I made the shirt, that it was going to be a comic. I, I just put that out there to kind of almost promote the comic as I was drawing it, because as we know, it takes forever if you're writing, drawing, you know, inking, and then self-publishing to just put out issues. So I wanted to do a little bit of advertising. I wanted to get the image out on the on the internet, um, and MySpace seemed like a good vehicle for that. So everybody, occasionally people try and ding me and say, well, it's a, it's a um, comic based on a shirt. No, I was writing and drawing the comic. I released the shirt as a promo thing. Um, it actually started life out as a, a paper doll drawing. That's amazing. I had no idea. Gosh, when you mentioned MySpace, it really is a reminder how far back this character goes. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's funny because uh, in 2018, it is the 10-year anniversary of the first proper issue, like floppy issue, that I put out. So I'm, I'm starting to pull together a show, like a retrospective show for that, and kind of shopping it around, pitching it to um, galleries and, and museums. Uh, because I have so much material. I mean, there is like there are dozens of comics. Those mini comics you you picked up were probably the handmade ones that are full size, but I printed and and assembled and stapled. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, but there's so much other ephemera uh, that I could. I have hundreds of pieces, and I have a bunch of art. I've done a couple um, compilation books of other artists drawing my oath characters: um, Gilbert Hernandez, Johnny Ryan, Jim Rugg. Um, uh, Andrew McLean. Uh, so I want to I want to put all of that together and put that next to just the breadth of stuff that I've put out um, over the last ten years. I can't believe it's been ten years. So. It's crazy. Um, yeah. It okay. feels like a long time ago to me. Definitely, I feel like I've been doing this for my adult 
entire adult life. <laughs> but I, I really, I started in my, my, my early 30s. Uh, you know, I moved to San Francisco uh, 11 years ago, um, this coming fall. And, you know, that was when I kind of got the, the seed. I went to the Alternative Press Expo. I met a bunch of cartoonists and I started to think, maybe I can do this. Like I have, theoretically, I have the skill set to do it. Uh, being a painter and, and an illustrator. It, and I bought comics since I was, you know, 12. Um, like as a serious collector, I just didn't quite know how to storytell. You know, I wasn't quite sure what I had to say um, until I, I lived in San Francisco for a year and decided, no, nope, I'm going to make it about the really fraught gay dating scene here uh, because it's really insane. So that became like the, the spine of the storyline. Uh, but as I kept making things and meeting people and buying more comics and kind of educating myself about just how indie uh, narratives work and meeting actually a lot of queer comic creators and seeing what they were talking about the it kind of grew from there you know I saw you know, I saw a hole in the type of story that I, I wanted to read so you know you, you hear that the best way to, to fix that is to write a story make something yourself so sure um, let, I have a twofold question um, how has the comic been received in the gay community plus are you is it even part of your like interest to be received in the community because I'm not sure that it's I, I would not even think of it first and foremost as a gay comic in giant quotes if that makes sense no you know it's very uh, encouraging to to hear you say that um, I was walking with my husband down the street today and we were talking about the, uh, just an indie cartoonist and and the fact that that indie cartoonist didn't have to be introduced as a straight indie cartoonist when people talked about him mm -hmm. and how I have to be introduced as a gay cartoonist, not everywhere, you know, and not in everyone's minds, not not in yours, clearly. Um, but yeah, uh, so to go back to your, your first question about just how it's been received, I mean, starting it, it was an obvious love letter to specifically the bear community. And I didn't really think anybody would embrace it beyond that. Uh, it just seemed very specific. I was getting a lot of catty comments from people that I was meeting in the gay comics world saying, oh, this is so niche. Like, you shouldn't even bother bringing this to a publisher. No one will be interested in this. It's like a niche of a niche. And I was like, well, okay, um, you haven't read the book, number one. Uh, if you had, you'll see that um, while it's undeniably coming from a queer perspective, I, I didn't self-label. That was, And that was if I made any conscious choices early on. Um, you open the book and you should be able to figure out in about 30 seconds or less that the character is gay and these are, these are queer characters. Um, but I don't use bear or gay or queer or any of that in the terminology. Um, and this is where I've gotten into trouble a little bit in some interviews, especially before this most recent election. I would refer to it, this is probably more like five, six years ago, as it being kind of like a post-gay book or the gay book for everybody else. Because uh, I was thinking, well, if you took the gay content out, um, you know, you would still have enough of a story to to enjoy and there'd be enough there things there to keep you interested. Um, but it, the book didn't live or die on identity politics. And it was important for me to not um, self-label and not put a giant stamp on there um, because I wanted everybody to be able to enjoy it. I, that queer perspective is undeniable, but I, I wanted everybody else to feel like they could pick it up uh, and enjoy it on its own terms. 
Uh, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, when I think about the book, I think about a very strong central figure and, and it's a lot of it's the graphics, but a lot of it is this, the gravity in that character. Like he's not verbose. There's not a lot of dialogue, but you definitely are drawn into his world and his point of view just by like maybe just sheer force of weight because he takes up so much visual space. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's such an intense design and he, and also his loves are right there on the sleeve. It's heavy metal, it's cats, and he's looking for love. And that is such a universal drive. The fact that he brings home like skinny little men doesn't necessarily even mean anything. It's that he's looking for that type of affection. Um, and there's like kind of a, uh, like a charming neediness to him that I think everybody kind of relates to. Um, yeah, so it doesn't even occur to me at the, that at the forefront that it's a comic about a gay character. He's just looking for love. Does that make yeah, sense? No, absolutely. Uh, I I think um, you know there are. I wanted to make sure, as I said, that if you picked up the book and you you saw that there were gay characters in it, that um, even if that made you think, well, this isn't for me, and you had this uh, sudden desire to put it down, the cats would kind of keep you in the loop. There's mm-hmm. clearly a lot of music imagery. There's concerts. There's bands playing. There's guitars. Um, there's a lot of those references in the early issues. Uh, and if you were on the fence about picking it up because you thought, oh, this is a gay book and this isn't for me, that there was enough compelling in there um, to to pick it up and give it a chance. Uh, that was really important for me. Uh, and that art career that I just sort of mentioned, uh, I was a painter for 12 years. Uh, I worked through the the kind of fine arts gallery system for 12 years. I created a lot of um, explicitly queer work that I saw a very explicitly gay audience respond to and almost nobody else. Or I would get a lot of sort of token curators would put me in a show because they needed like a gay, you know, uh, artist in their stable or they wanted to add a little bit of diversity into what they were doing. Um, but otherwise I just didn't get a, a huge response from those early paintings and things. They were, they were very coded. They were very, um, sexual. Uh, and I, I, when I went to, to reinvent myself sort of as a comic book artist, I knew that I wanted to speak to a larger audience. I just wanted to, to make sure that I got my ideas across to a group of people that maybe didn't respond so much to the paintings that I had done in the past. So, um, I thought uh, all those things that you just mentioned, like cats, music, heavy metal, wrestling. They were all things I knew were super popular and that I loved and that are a part of my DNA. So why not throw them into a comic and give them like a space? I can do literally whatever I want in the comics medium. There's such a wonderful precedent that um, a lot of cartoons, as I mentioned before, The Simpsons and South Park have set where you can, they can create a character because they want to talk about a certain um, pop cultural phenomenon or a certain uh, genre. Uh, they want to make a horror, you know, story or a horror episode or, or a singing episode or a musical episode. So I really kind of took that approach, appropriated it and put it into uh, the main storyline of Wubble Loaf, but also a lot of those mini comics, too, that, that you mentioned before. There's a sci fi story uh, that I'm really excited to and that I actually did a sequel for in Heavy Metal magazine. So, um, you know, the fact that I could get my Oaf characters into heavy metal if you just picked up that main book and you know about the romantic comedy side, you might be like, well, how did this get into heavy metal? And the answer is I can version it. You know, I can do a sci-fi <laughs> take on it because it's the, it, it has enough of uh, enough legs to carry that. Uh, I can make it high concept. 
Yeah, to, but to talk a little bit about the gay audience, I think early on they um, embraced it. They recognized the imagery immediately. But I think some of them were like, where's the sex? Where's the, when are you going to do a porno version of this? When are you going to do an erotic, explicit version? Uh, and if anything, a little bit of that initial audience dropped off a bit. But because I didn't make it explicit, the uh, what I would kind of generalize as uh, the heterosexual audience picked it up. Women responded to the cats. Of course, some women really like that type of guy that Oaf is. Um, they were attracted to that side of it. Um, the more I pumped up the music elements, the more I started to get heavy metal dudes interested in what I was doing. And coincidentally, a lot of heavy metal dudes love cats. It's this weird, you know, intersection um, between music and, and uh, loving. There's, and there's a photo book of yeah. metal dudes and cats. Yeah. yeah. But... Uh, I was able to play a little bit with, well, let's pump up the cats a little bit here and, and go down that route um, to make the cat people happy. Let's make a bunch more music comics, which is what I've been really focused on in the last couple of years, um, to, to draw in maybe some of these guys that I wouldn't have thought normally would have been interested in a queer comic. Sure. Um, it's a... Uh, speaking of the sex, mm. there is sex in the book. I can't remember it ever being explicit, but it's explicit in like maybe a sitcom way where there's they're in bed together or whatever. Um, have you ever had any pushback on that from anyone at all? Just the fact that there is a very open, here they are, two mm -hmm. guys who are attracted to each other to, that have clearly just had sex. Um, or does everybody know what they're getting into when they pick up the book? I think uh, it's so funny, uh, and I'm going to digress a little bit, so you'll have to keep me on, on Go track. For it. Um, I, I, some of my favorite cartoonists are the sort of straight male cartoonists who have to work really hard to stay shocking uh, and be very controversial. They have to throw everything against the wall, and they pour a lot of their time and energy into that. I can show one dick in my book. And I think there is one dick in the entire 264-page Fanographics first book. People freak out. It's the thing that they <laughs> mean. They're like, oh, I was all into it, and then, then, then there was that. And as you said, it's not even really explicit. There's, I think um, his he's peeing. He takes his dick out to go pee. Uh, and that's way in the back portion of the book. Um, I think um, it's never been verbalized to me, but I think on occasion um, some of the other queer comics creators I know have thought, oh, well, Ed's book isn't really relevant because it doesn't in include a lot of explicit sex. It's not gay enough. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, my response to that is, what am I supposed to do? Are there is there a list I'm supposed to check off? You know, uh, I'm not compromising myself. I really believe in everything that I put in. And, you know, I'm aware that I can test the audience a little bit. Uh, I can push them a little bit. But I'm not interested in pushing them over the edge with some of that content. I would rather they get something out of it and get excited about it and relate to the characters a little bit more than suddenly hit this weird wall that I can't control. Like, I can't control people's hangups. I so. guess, I mean, I wonder if part of that is so much of the history of queer comics um in you know capital letters has been about activism mm -hmm. um i mean going back to the 70s Absolutely. yeah i don't begrudge anybody who wants to use their comic as a platform for that not at all and especially young people 
Um, if your character walks through the door of the first page of your comic and says, I'm gay, you know, that's great. Young people, there can't be enough of those comics for young people. Right. I just, I want to make a comic that, I, my comics wouldn't have that. Like, I don't walk through the door and say that to, to everybody around me. When I start talking, it may become obvious, but uh, I I don't want to, I want to have a comic and a narrative that's a little bit more naturalistic where you pick up upon those things and um, you can respond to everything else that's going in it too without this self-conscious kind of, I call it flag-waving comics, which as I said are really great and we need those. We absolutely need those. But I mean, I'm looking at... <laughs> the new the cover of my new issue and it's got a freaking rainbow all over it so <laughs> i i can't say that i'm not flag waving on some level yeah i mean i i guess in a in a certain type of political climate having gay content at all is political in and of itself yeah I, i've lived in rural upstate new york and witnessed firsthand um how queerness kind of manifests itself it's not of the what we would consider flag waving variety it's a very subtle it's it's all about certain cues um some people that's how they express themselves is to be married to a woman and, and be a gay man at the rest stop so uh, i'm aware that there and I, I i think that what you're saying is true like there is a a rainbow to use a really bad pun of ways of expressing and manifesting your queerness it doesn't necessarily have to check all these boxes you don't have to make a comic that's overtly political i feel like being a gay cartoonist and putting my work out in an honest way is already really political you know uh, throwing my putting myself into uh shows and being on panels not just gay comics panels but music panels whatever i'm putting my perspective out there i, I don't have a um a pen name you know what you see is what you get with me um, so I feel like I'm living that politicized life all the time. Um, having said that, though, in the Fanographics uh, free comics book, free comic book day thing that just came out, it's one of my very few political cartoons where the oaf, uh, the female oaf uh, wrestler Disastra, um, fights uh, Trump, and it came out right before the election. Uh, and I, I put it out there, you know, thinking, oh, this is, of course, it's going to be the great beatdown. This is just preaching to the choir. Um, and now here we are. I sort of look around and when I say post-gay or I said post-gay earlier, no, we're all in the fight for our lives now. So there is no post. You know, there's acceptance, which is great. But, um, you know, maybe it is time down the road to to make sure that I, I do inject a little bit of that of that in there um, just to to mark the times, you know. I don't want to get into a, a harsh generalization, but there may be a lack of awareness about that actual struggle, mm -hmm. uh, especially with um, ACT UP uh, and those those that first decade of, of AIDS. Um, to the point where sometimes I get a little frustrated because I do read a lot of uh, pieces from, you know, pop cultural sites, news outlets about how kind of the gay white man is the secondary devil only to the cisgendered white straight man. Um, and it is true, like gay men, especially white gay men, do have a lot of privilege. Um, but we we didn't sort of skip merrily through the last 25, 30 years. No. It was horrific. And my partner is actually uh, in his 60s. And he lived through that whole ordeal. He doesn't have really friends his age because... Uh, they all died. 
So while we, we've been able to acquire a certain amount of status and a certain amount of security, certainly above trans folks and people of color and trans uh, people of color um, and women, um, we're still, you know, we, we still had a really rough time. Uh, and I think that uh, I, you know, one of the reasons I, I fell in love with my husband was because he is this living kind of historical document. Um, he's somebody who can keep alive that history. So I did, uh, and I haven't done much with the character, but Oaf's adoptive father uh, is a pattern after my partner um, because I want him to kind of be the placeholder for that, that not everybody died, that um, some people did live. Uh, and they are sort of looking around thinking, what what do I do now? Um, that's what the little pop-up uh, character represents, certainly. Um, but I do think there there is a younger generation that is really into making those activist comics and that their their work is only political and there's not really a lot more going on besides that. Mm-hmm. So I think it waxes and wanes. Maybe it skipped my generation. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, the folks, the, the really young people, like in their early 20s that I know or that I'm aware of that are making queer comics, they are with that, that bent. They are using sort of very specific terms that are a part of the online discourse, um, talking about non-binary gender, talking about um, trans issues in particular, talking about intersectionality. Um, and I do often feel a little bit implicated in that, as we were talking before, because my book, Um, shows a lot of that stuff rather than telling, you know, and referring to specifically. It's kind of in there and you have to look at it and observe it and and glean that content without it being kind of rhetorically imparted to you. So the the queer comics of the, you know, 60s and 70s and 80s were much more using that language and and trading on it uh, and making sure that it got out there, that discussion got out there. Um, so I feel like there is, it did, I'm Generation X, maybe millennial creators are embracing that rhetoric again um, that the baby boomers were using. See, they get along. <laughs> it's not all baby boomers against millennials. They really have way more in common, at least in queer comics, than they may think that they do. There also may be a, a lack of a reference point. I know, I, I think we're the same age. Um, and when we were kids, Hothead Paisan was, like, mm. that was one of the... the the big and you know dykes to watch out for was running in papers and uh there were a handful of uh of other books the floating around that where it wasn't just it, it wasn't marginalized like hot paisan was a was a big comic in in my store at least so yeah um, yeah that was that and um bitchy bitch were the first comics i went out um to educate myself on when i started Wolf Below, I picked up a bunch of those because they spoke the most to me. They were the most punk rock. They weren't mm-hmm. really polished. Uh, I was obviously looking something out for uh, queer comics outside of the token characters that Marvel and DC had been using for years and the sort of train wreck that North Star had become did not speak <laughs> to me at all. Um, there were whispers of queer characters in, in uh, DC comics up until that point, but we didn't really have a Batwoman or anything like that. Right. Uh, in the the mid 2000s so i went to hot pet head paisan and 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 bitchy bitch roberta uh, gregory's uh work uh just because it looked like how i wanted to draw it was really rough hewn and kind of crazy and anything could happen in those and they weren't they were kind of offensive uh, they were really in your face mm-hmm. and i like that about it oh yeah what else would you put in that list of stuff that uh that inspired you and really like spoke to you at the time 
Well, I, this is another thing that I struggle with a little bit and maybe why some of these more overt queer themes aren't coming through so much in my work as maybe had uh, I been more influenced more by uh, queer cartoonists than, say, the Hernandez brothers. Like, certainly I was really looking a lot at them. Um, they do use queer characters, but they themselves aren't, aren't um, uh, gay dudes uh, uh, as far as I know. Um, I was really into Junko Mizuno's work, mm-hmm. um, Pure Trance, Gave me a lot of permission to do weird, crazy things. Uh, I'm trying to think of who else. China Clugston Flores. Uh, I'm so glad that Blue Monday has gotten the the recolor treatment through Image recently, because again, uh, her connection to music in Blue Monday, the way that music is used uh, as a reference, as a plot point, as a character development, was something that I really picked up on and was like, this is great. I have to do this. Um, it's why there are so many Morrissey references in those early issues. Um, <laughs> although I kind of wish that I wasn't doing that anymore or that it wasn't out there as much because everything I read about Morrissey now is really upsetting to me. Um, but yeah, those were all super influential on me. And from there, uh, one of my favorite queer comics that I know drives people crazy, but I always pay lip service to is the very first prison pit volume by Johnny Ryan. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorite erotic gay comics. And I know that was not his intent. I know I'm reading way into it. I know that he does what he does in that book to freak out his straight dude audience in that. But it's sexy. And sexy is sexy. And, I, you know, uh, that was a big book that I looked at that, that got me to say, I want to do more wrestling stuff. I've already sown that seed in the comic, but I'm looking forward to kind of making a fight comic uh, in the future that's my version of Prison Pit. That sounds awesome. You know, it's funny that you mentioned Junko Mizuno because I, when you say that, I can see like almost a straight line from that sense of design to what you do on a page. With like, I mean, down to like line widths and kind of symmetry and stuff. Yeah, she's just brilliant. And she did a, a drawing of the O for me that is just this perfect fusion of what she does and what I do. I've thought about trying to license it from her to do t-shirts with it because it's just, she, she does this little like floral pattern that is his hair, Uh, you know, it's flowers and what she does and it's hair and what I do simultaneously. And it's, it's just, it's brilliant and it's really beautiful. I can't not mention also, um, Dame Darcy, uh, and meat cake. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw what she was doing with that book and the little cottage industry that she created around herself with dolls and, and handmade items. And I bought this beautiful uh, paper doll, strangely enough, uh, book that had a lot of uh, hand-colored watercolor touches to the outfits that was sewn together with a ribbon. And I was like, this is amazing. I need to own everything by Dame Darcy. <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to think back on all the other stuff that came out, but there was like music, there was like a lot of multimedia stuff around like 2000-ish. Yeah, I mean, and she was busy. I think she just started doing custom dolls. You know, she did a doll for um, Courtney Love for Francis Cobain made from the hair of Kurt Cobain, uh, which is just such a head trip. But knowing her and her work, um, it makes total sense. Um, we talked a little bit about activist comics. Um, what would you recommend people pick up that's not necessarily activist, but might might kind of give them a new point of view on, on anything, not necessarily even like queer comics or culture, but something that might be a little mm-hmm. bit mind-breaking? I ask because I know you are an educator. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm sure you have pretty handy uh, a list of things you want students to take a look at. The, no? Here's my terrible shame. Um, when I meet <laughs> with my uh, my mentors, I part of my main job at uh, California College of the Arts on the Comics MFA program is to hold semester-long mentorships with the students where they turn in their thesis work uh, every two weeks and I look at it and uh, give them feedback on it. Kind of act like an editor, uh, a technical advisor, uh, answer any questions, just let them know how it's kind of reading and, and what they might tweak. Um, but the first meeting I have with those students is to confess to them that I like what would in academic comic circles be called trash. I like a lot of trash comics. I, I'm um, so with you. Yeah, and I, and I refer to them as such um, lovingly, you know, absolutely lovingly. Uh, and I, I'm almost now hesitant to list a bunch of people that I would figure would come underneath that that uh, heading um, because I don't want to uh, make it sound like what I think that they're doing is is trash. But in academia, the stuff that I love um, is not I, I very rarely get to talk about uh, because it's just not anything. People want to come and talk to me about Alison Bechtel and they want to talk to me about Saga and they want to talk to me about uh, a bunch of stuff that um, whatever is relevant, whatever is the um, like back when Lumberjanes was really popular, everybody wanted to, to discuss Lumberjanes and what I thought this meant and if I thought that character was queer or not. And uh, I had to just sort of confess that um, my yeah, my consumption is pretty pretty superficial by comparison. So recently, coming off of the Queers and Comics conference that happened at CCA a couple weeks ago, um, the the book that really struck me and interestingly, it is back from the seventies. Um, it's a collection of work from Lee Mars, mm-hmm. uh, the Pudge book that just got nominated for an Eisner. Oh yeah, uh, I was on a panel with her and she was talking about all the hate mail that she used to receive from that book about being a woman and being large bodied, bigger bodied. Uh, And I started to cry on the panel because it dawned on me that um, I was a queer man making a book about a larger, larger bodied people. And I don't receive any of that. I've never gotten any nasty messages about how gross my characters are or whatever. And it just like struck me uh, of how number one things have changed. And again, how much privilege I have being who I am. So I would recommend that book, that Pudge book. Uh, absolutely. Also another Eisner nominee, um, the, and I'm, I'm fudging the, the name. Let me see if I can look it up. Um, but it's by Eric Kostuik Williams. Um, and the book that I bought was, uh, condo heartbreak disco, which is, if you're not familiar with his work, it is singular in its um, surreal, masterful uh, composition. The way that he draws is just incredible. So the the other book that I would recommend uh, by Eric Kostuk Williams is Baby Bell Wax Bodysuit. That was the one that got nominated for an Eisner this year uh, in, uh, I believe it's the best single issue category. And he just has this really unique compositional uh, style, very unique rendering style. It's very uh, surrealist. That's the best way, the only way that I can describe it, while also being um, a comic, you know, working mm-hmm. very firmly rooted in the language, the visual language of comics. Um, that book is the Baby Bell Rubber Wax book, is um, the color book. The Kondo um, Heartbreak Disco is a black and white book, equally as beautiful. His, his work work uh, works well in either um, format. 
but yeah, I would recommend uh, that book is more political. It's about uh, what's going on in Toronto with development and people being priced out of homes and, and kicked out of buildings so that condos can be built. Basically, what's been happening in San Francisco for years is, is going on in these other major cities. So he has two characters in that book that are kind of like the superheroes of that sad um, gentrification that's going on. So it has a political stripe in it that's a little bit more uh, overt than what I do. But it's still really playful. It's fun. There's a lot of pop music references in there to Britney Spears. Um, so, yeah, I would I would recommend those two two books those would be the things that i've been most excited about lately that fall in the more kind of the queer spectrum cool and you're you have how many books out available at the moment well the ones that i i think uh, are still uh promotable um are the Wolf of blood and metal book uh that came out uh late last year it's the color collection the first one from fanographics uh, it's got a lot of short stories in it all the comics that i did for vice that were uh, online the wrestling comics um, the thing that I'm going to be debuting at TCAP this weekend uh, is Wolf Wolf number five. I know that nobody can see this, but I'm holding it up so that you, you can see, uh, which has been like freaking three or four years in the making. Uh, I was working on this book when Fanographics decided to publish the first big collection, which is getting a reprint. Um, so it's worth, I guess, mentioning that the first run sold out. So this June, you should be able to get that that big fat um very oaf-sized 264-page volume. But the, this is the first comic that I've self-published that falls outside of either of those uh, Fanographics books. Um, and one half of it is a new writer, Matt Wobensmith. His name should be familiar to longtime readers in that he occasionally writes the Smusher character. He does little stories for him. Uh, but it's making uh, Smusher, Oaf's friend, the uh, main character of the front part of the book. So. We're going in a slightly different direction. It's still chubby guys and cats, but uh, mu the Muffin Top Girls, who were very peripheral one-note characters throughout that first story arc, now are going to be taking center stage and sort of taking over the book with Smusher. On the reverse side, it continues the story of Oaf and Eiffel after their first date. Uh, Oaf decides to chase him down. Uh, his band is on tour. Eiffel's band is on tour, Ejaculate. So Oaf decides uh, he's going to uh, chase them down and join the tour. That story arc is called Yoke Oaf Onof. And you can kind of <laughs> tell where that might be headed. Uh, but yeah, 44 pages. Uh, debuting at TCAF. It's available online at wuffableoaf.com. And I'm really excited. I'm proud of it. It's the uh, technically probably the, mo the the book with the least mistakes. Uh, that <laughs> That's always a great bar to set for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for talking to us, Ed. I think it's uh, been great. Thank you, Alex. It's always a pleasure to, to talk to you and, and comic book legal defense. Star in the sky. Still I saw stars. Thanks again to Ed Luce for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. This podcast is made possible in part with a grant from the Gaiman Foundation. It's also donor-supported, and if you'd like to donate to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, you can learn more at cbldf.org. That's also one-stop shopping to find out about whatever current work we're doing. It's updated daily, and I encourage everyone to check it out. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please uh, recommend it to a friend. And please take a minute to rate us on iTunes, which is a good way to help us uh, get some attention. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next month with another conversation. And we'll talk to you then. Mm -hmm.